Let's go before God as needy, frail sinners before a Father who hears and loves us. Father, we do come before you in that spirit knowing that you care, knowing that you attend to us in our needs. And we lift up a few concerns that we have before you, a few things that we need or perceive that we need, and we pray that you would answer us in your wisdom for our good and for your glory. God, we lift up those, those students who have returned, any especially who might be with us this morning, who are preparing for uh, a semester of new experiences and new classes Challenges that they're not even aware of yet. We pray that you would help them to get off on the right foot. That you would help them to uh, honor you with their studies. Honor you with their lives. Honor you with the choices that stand before them in the coming months. We pray also those, for those who might be new to Cleveland for, for work. We know that often the, the fall be, brings not just students to us, but, but people transferring in for for new jobs. And so we pray that they would get situated in this city, that they would see what the city has to offer and that they would love this city. We pray especially for those newcomers who are Christians, that you would help them to serve the city for the sake of your majesty. And for those who do not know you, who are not Christians who come into the city, we pray that the city would be a place where they hear and engage the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be a people that is faithful to proclaim it. We pray, Father, for the, the flooding in India that continues. We thank you, Father God, for the, the population of Christians in that area who are able now to be servants of their fellow citizens in helping them to recover, and we pray that those efforts and those moments of care for their neighbor, those acts as good Samaritans would lead their Hindu and Muslim neighbors to see the light of Jesus Christ and inquire more about it. Show your church worldwide how to support our brothers and sisters who are struggling there and who may have a long road of recovery ahead of them. And now we pray for our time in the word, that it would be fruitful, that it would be edifying, that we would speak and hear only what is true, that you would convict us where we need convicting, encourage us where we need encouraging, strengthen us where we are weak. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we are in a, a series on the book of Jude, which we will finish next week, and then we've got some, some really exciting stuff coming up in the fall that I am pumped about, but we will get to that when we get to that. Uh, if you are new, we do have a card on the connection table and in the offering table of a list of upcoming sermons. It's kind of short at this point, but look for that um, as the calendar turns over. There'll be a new one out there so that you can read the passages ahead of time. Study that at home by yourself, study that with your spouse, study that with your friend. Uh, you, you, when we come together, then you can be checking what I say by God's word, and we're having conversations in God's word. Most of you guys are familiar with the idea of a case study. 
A case study is usually a real-life example or a hypothetical variation on a real-life example that someone has seen. And it's designed to put the hearer in a place where they're forced to ask, what ought I to do if I were stuck in that situation? And, and it usually involves some competing demands so that the, the answer isn't easy. There's a part of us that feels pulled to do one thing and maybe other parts that are pulled to do other things. And, and so the answer isn't always obvious or easy. It's similar to an ethical dilemma you know, the little stories where, you know, if there's three people in the lifeboat and this person's going to die and who are you going to save? The, the difference being, though, they're, they're born out of real-life examples. They're things that people have really seen. And so they're really practical. They're really helpful in helping us to think through things that we might encounter before we encounter them so that we can respond well. And so if we have a, a good case study and we do good pre-thinking, we maybe don't have as much regrets in our post-thinking. We've been working through Jude, like I said, and, and Jude is writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing some false teachers. Some false teachers have come into their midst. It seems like they are teaching not necessarily bad doctrine as much as bad ethics. In other words, they aren't heretics the way we normally think of it, like denying Jesus as God, denying the Trinity, or something like that. They're moral heretics. Their behavior doesn't align with what Christian morality instructs us. And Jude has challenged his audience, the church or churches he's writing to, to contend for the faith. He's explained to them why this is so dangerous for them. He has explained why the condemnation of these false teachers is assured. He has given them instructions about what to do about the false teachers. But as we start to get close to the end of the chapter, he wants to encourage his readers about what to do with those who have maybe succumbed to the false teachers' claims. So, turn... In the book of Jude, if you're not there yet, and we are going to look at verses 22 through 23. So if you uh, are not sure where Jude is at, if you go to the back of your Bible, that's the book of Revelation. And if you flip carefully toward the front, very slowly, you'll hit Jude. It's the next book. It's probably a page, so don't skip it. Verses 22 and 23, Jude writes, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude's point for us. He is writing to an audience who is in the midst of dealing with a very dangerous situation, a spiritually dangerous situation, and now we've got some, some good, otherwise faithful people who have succumbed to the false teaching. For them, it was real world. For them, it was immediate. For us, it serves a bit like a case study. We see something that happened in the past. We get Jude's recommendations on how we deal with it. 
and it prepares us to deal with a similar situation in the future. And Jude commands us to act decisively to protect each other's spiritual life. Jude commands us to act decisively to protect each other's spiritual life. And Jude does that by giving three different protection strategies for three different situations. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. So let's look at that. Jude has three imperatives, three commands in this, in this that form the overarching idea. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. That's the first one. The first group of people that Jude is concerned with is those who doubt. Uh, a better translation might be wavering. Have mercy on those who are wavering. Doubting is accurate. I'm not saying that doubting is, the, is wrong, but it, it, it's not talking about doubt in the sense of disbelieving. This is doubt as in uncertainty, being unsure. They're wavering between two different positions. The false teachers who have uh, silently crept in among the Christians Judah's writing to have surely begun to, to influence them. Some are, are, are beginning to mentally entertain the ideas that the teachers are espousing. And they're beginning to wonder, are they right? And so they're wavering between true Christian religion and a false copy that perverts Christian ethics. It's an easy pit to fall into, and I, I certainly have in the past, to castigate anyone with false beliefs. If you're more introverted, that might come out in the way of you, you, you stop having anything to do with a person who is questioning core Christian teaching or ethics. If you're a more extroverted person, you might chew them out or scold them. The passive-aggressive person might just speak behind the person's back, and the simply aggressive person might announce the person's weakness in front of a group of peers. Maybe that's not you. And it's probably not a lot of you because our culture tends to shy away from outright criticism and correction altogether. But you've probably seen this behavior. And you'll probably be tempted toward it at some point or another in your life. If it's not naturally your personality, you still might find yourself kind of in this mode when the person is someone you deeply care about. And that person is being pulled in such a direction that it feels personal to you. But here's the thing. We are weak. We who are Christians, all humans, but we who are Christians know it more than anyone else. That we are weak vessels. We are dinghies that are buffeted by the winds of a raging storm who stay afloat and on course only because our arms are stiffened by the Spirit and our eyes are fixed on a Savior on the shore. And as long as we stay in that posture, we'll be safe and we'll be well. Like Peter, though, who had faith to step out on the water. You know the story, I, I assume. We often find ourselves suddenly wavering in our faith. And for a moment, we take our eyes off the Savior. And for a moment, we begin to doubt whether he can hold us up. We waver in our commitment, and suddenly, those waters become a danger that threatens to swallow our very lives. Martin Luther famously said, There, but by the grace of God, go I. 
And by this, he meant that there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no atrocity. And certainly no wavering that I can hold myself back from. I am that evil. I am that vile. I am the SS soldier. I am the lyncher. I am the adulterer. I am the serial killer. I am the criminal mastermind. But by the grace of God. God has restrained me from my own sinfulness. In his goodness, he has rescued me from myself. There, but by the grace of God, go I. And so when I see a brother or a sister begin to waver, when I see them begin to doubt, it's a reminder that I am not so good. I am not so holy. I am not so great as to not likewise be tempted. And so I am moved to do what Jude says, which is have mercy. Now, to have mercy in this sense is to have compassion, to be moved to pity. In such a way as you act on their behalf. That's not a dictionary definition. That's just as I look at people having mercy on each other in Scripture... In the Bible, it's never merely a sympathetic emotion. It's a pity that is punctuated with action. So we think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'll trust you remember the, the basic idea of the Good Samaritan. A man is robbed, he's left for dead. Two other rather important individuals walk right past him, not wanting to have anything to do with him. But a Samaritan, and the Samaritans were mortal enemies of the Jews, binds up his wounds, takes him in his arms, takes him to an inn, and pays for the man's recovery. And when Jesus asked the audience which of the three men had behaved as a neighbor toward the injured stranger, his interlocutor uh, is forced to answer the one who showed him mercy. So there's a, there's a type of pity in our culture and perhaps it's always been there, I don't know, but this is the culture I live in, where we feel bad for someone, but rather than, lower, uh, rather than help them, we lower the bar. Because we feel sorry for them, we expect less of them. We tell ourselves it's okay that they do less. And so we never actually help them. Sometimes we do this with a sort of self-pity. We excuse our own deepest flaws and faults because we feel sorry for our own selves. And so we, I lower the bar of what's acceptable for me. But it stands to reason that if the Samaritan had merely felt bad for the person along the side of the road, he would not have been a particularly good neighbor. In fact, he would have arguably been the cruelest of all the passerbys because he most acutely recognized the man's need and still ignored it. Instead, mercy is pity put into action. And so when we see a fellow Christian wavering, whether in their beliefs or whether in their actions, perhaps being led astray by false ideas, 
We must have compassion, but we also must act. That's true mercy. If we saw a friend teetering on the edge of a wall, wouldn't we grab her hand? Wouldn't we steady his feet? And if all else fails, wouldn't we position ourselves under the wall to cushion their fall? That's mercy. It would not be merciful to see the person teetering on the wall and say, oh, I feel so awful for them. They can't keep their balance. I hope they're okay. That's not merciful. That's pity without mercy. We need to gently and lovingly interject ourselves in order to ensure that the wavering steady themselves on the solid ground. What does that look like? Well, it looks like preaching the gospel. Reminding them that, that Jesus died for sinners so that sinners can die to sin. That we are rescued from the eternal consequences of our evil, which is hell. And one of the upshots of that salvation is that we no, no, we no longer need to live for sin, but we are freed and empowered to live for Christ's righteousness. And we must. That's our calling. And so we take our friends back to scripture with love and with gentleness, but we act decisively. The second command becomes a little bit more serious. So the first part of verse 23, Jude writes, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Notice where these individuals are. They are in the fire, which is why they must be brought out. Evidently, there were some Christians in Jude's audience that had gone beyond mental wavering. They have tested the waters of sin. Like I said earlier, and like we've seen earlier in this series, the false teachers were most likely moral heretics. So it's not so much a question whether they have the wrong beliefs about God, but a question about whether they have the right conduct before God. And they seem to be arguing on some sort of grounds or another that they can engage in certain and various types of behavior that God has otherwise revealed to be wicked. There seems to be little doubt that at least part of this liberty they were taking was eschewing Christian norms about sexuality. But of course, improper conduct is rarely found without some sort of mistaken belief about God. For instance, we might not give up a sin because we believe that Jesus will just forgive it. And so it doesn't matter. I can just go on sinning because Jesus will take care of it. And that's a mistaken belief about God because while those who profess faith in Christ can be forgiven, can be restored into a right relationship with the Father and receive eternal life, a person who refuses to turn from sin and fight that sin is loving the sin more than the Savior. And they fail to understand that one of the marks of a true Christian is that he or she fights against sin. And that someone who treats gr uh, Jesus' grace that casually might not understand what it means to be a true Christian. And so at a very fundamental level, if a person says that some sin, X, is okay or even good, 
that person has a misunderstanding, an incorrect belief about the very character of God. So we can't entirely separate the two realms of belief and action. But it does seem like the moral component is at the forefront in Jude's audience. Whatever the specifics, the teachers have led some other Christians into their heresy, and now those Christians are in jeopardy. Suppose your house catches on fire, your apartment perhaps, or your dorm. How long do you have to survive? How much time do you have before you absolutely must get out? Late last year, the Washington Post reported on data from an underwriter's laboratories study uh, on this very question. Do you have a time in mind? Do you have a, you have a number in mind? How long do you think you have to get out? Back in the old days, you had about 17 minutes. It's a lot of time. But that was before open floor plans, modern furniture, which burn a lot faster. Today, you have about three minutes to get out of your house on average before you're out of time. Jude says these brothers and sisters are in a situation as if they're in a fire. It's, it's as if the flames of hell have begun to singe their garments. In any moment, they will be consumed. They're trapped. There's no way out. And they need to be rescued. They need to be snatched from the fire. The situation is dire. They have very limited time. How do we do that? Well, kidnapping probably isn't what Jude had in mind. Um, maybe it's best to think about it in contrast with the wavering brother. Because the wavering brother is mentally considering the false teaching. We meet him with the word of God. And we meet him with persuasive appeals based on the word of God. But the sister who is already in the fire needs more decisive action than that. Of course persuasion is good. And God's word is always called for. But snatching her from the flame probably looks more like a command. Get out Stop this. You're in danger. We can't literally force them to do something, but there's a, a sense of urgent, decisive action here, more so than with having mercy on a person who is simply doubting. Jude doesn't even mention mercy here. Although the action is loving, perhaps there simply is no time for gentleness. If someone you love falls into a fire, they are not going to be upset with you if you scrape their skin, wrestling them from the fire. When the situation is dire, sometimes gentleness is not the highest priority. Sometimes we don't mean to be gruff, but the moment eludes niceties. I can remember one night I suspected a guy that I'd been trying to help. 
I'd been sharing the gospel with. I suspected he was getting high. He had, had been an addict before, and, and I suspected that he had relapsed. I don't remember what it was that got my attention that night. I don't remember what happened or what had been said that I got the idea that he was perhaps in trouble. I suspected, though, that it was urgent enough to get over to his house. And I took another guy with me, and we get there, and it's nuts. I don't have too many super crazy pastor stories, but this one is, I, I get to his apartment, you know, they're, they're shocked to me, there's all these guys around who are very suspicious of me, and it quickly becomes clear that he's renting out his bedroom to a prostitute, so, he has, so she has a safe place to turn tricks. He gets a little cut for that. He can use that money to feed his habit. All these other guys there, either, some of them are drug dealers. Some of them are waiting turns with the prostitute. It's not entirely clear who's who. It's nuts. And it was a little bit scary. But I sensed this guy was in the flames and decisive action was needed. My relative safety was not as important as his immediate danger. I wish I could say we snatched him from the flames that day, but unfortunately the analogy breaks down because we can't force someone to do something. I wish we could have. If I remember correctly, I think he got evicted from that apartment. Continued his addiction. Pulled a fast one a few too many times on some dealers and had his life in jeopardy. Fled to Florida thinking he could escape his problems there. Warned him that you're bringing yourself there. That you can't avoid. And soon enough, the patterns continued just in a different state. Used to call every once in a while, say, I'm coming home. I'm going to come back. We'll get together then. It's been a while. Every once in a while, I check the obituaries just to make sure. I haven't found one yet. But we didn't save him from the flames that day. The deceitfulness of sin is a deadly thing, it will consume you quicker than you realize. And so we dare not. Let a brother or sister dwell in sin. This might be the, the Christian version of see something, say something. It's not see something and go tell someone else. It's gossip, right? But you see a brother or sister in the faith, someone who is your spiritual family, someone you ought to love, and you go to them and you say something before that sin eats them alive. The final command Jude gives us is a command for a different group of people, and it's the most sobering, really. He writes to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So he's returned to mercy, but the language is different. It's striking with fear and hatred thrown in. We get a different picture, don't we? And I want to zero in on that hatred 
because I think it's the key to understanding what's going on here. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In Christian thought, the flesh usually doesn't refer to literal flesh. It doesn't refer to our human bodies, per se. It refers to the part of us that craves what the world can provide apart from God. Like Adam and Eve, who were not satisfied with the bountiful riches that God gave them out of his good world. So they departed from him, and they sought to eat from the one tree that God had commanded them not to. In the same way, we crave wicked things, and we crave good things in wicked ways. In other words, we crave things apart from God. And that's how early Christian leaders like Paul and Jude tend to use the term flesh. It was the part of us that is at war with God, that wants the things of this world on the world's terms, on my terms, and doesn't crave and desire within the context of relationship with God. And what the flesh has done in this case, at least potentially, is stained a garment. Now, the garment in question is the, the ketone. And it's an inner la layer, though it could be worn on its own. It was the one that you wore next to your skin. So it was underwear that some people thought was okay to be worn by itself. So I guess it was basically the sports bra of ancient Greece. <laughs> Except it covered everything, so maybe it was just, maybe it was just its own thing. But like anything worn against the skin, you can imagine it might be stained by the body, by the flesh. And we don't need to think too hard about how it might get stained. Under the Old Testament law, clothing could be deemed unclean if it came into contact with an unclean substance, like certain bodily fluids, oozing wounds, and things like that. This clothing could then contaminate someone or something else. Many of these laws had practical health benefits, uh, but they also set Israel apart as unique among its neighbors, as holy. We won't get into all of that, but Jude's audience would have been familiar with this. It's very clear from Jude's letter that there are a lot of Jewish Christians in the mix, um, or those who are familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And Jude's point is that the cravings of the flesh, that is sin, has a contaminating effect. It has a tendency to spread. It's no big deal when you begin to get sores or lesions on your body or skin. It's no big deal when you start to feel sick to your stomach. But once those sores break open and leak out into your clothing, once your stomach ache turns to diarrhea, you are a walking danger to everyone around you. Once the disease has spread, it can be deadly. And so we see that in this final group of people, Jude has in mind a much more serious failing. Jude has given advice about some individuals who have perhaps gone all in on the false teaching. They are fully engaged with the sinful practices. Perhaps they've convinced themselves that it's not a sin, that it's okay. They've convinced themselves that their Christian friends, their church, their families were just overblowing things, or just not with it not enlightened enough or aware. And so they're in deep. And it might be that they, if you look at them from the outside, they don't even really look like a Christian anymore. There's nothing in their life 
that suggests they've been redeemed by grace. Now, none of us are perfect. We know that. We understand that. And by the way, if you came here today looking for perfect people, you haven't been in church for a while, and you're thinking, let's see if these Christians have got it together, you're in the wrong place. The Christian message is that we are deeply flawed and deeply wicked people, and that's why we're here. That we know, among all people, that we need a Savior. We're not the people who have figured it out and gotten our stuff together. We're the people who have figured out that there is one who can get it together for us, and we need him. But we also believe that the Savior's word allows us to begin to live lives reflecting a growing holiness. No, we aren't perfect, but the Holy Spirit who is in us convicts us of sin. And so we repent, and we turn our back on those deeds, and we grow in righteousness. We're not afraid of imperfect people because we know that we are imperfect people. But that said, when we see people whose lives are characterized by ongoing, serious, unrepentant sin, we have good reason to question whether the Spirit really is at work in those persons' lives. We have every right to get offended when some guy on TV who is living in all sorts of wickedness is calling himself a Christian. It's not enough to merely believe the right things. Christianity demands a life of repentance. And so it's okay sometimes, and even necessary sometimes, to draw that line in the sand and say, I don't know how you can continue to live the way you're living and claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a time and a place for that. So this group isn't merely wavering. And they haven't found themselves suddenly in the flames like they dipped their toes into the shallow end of the pool. They are the marshmallow that has dropped into the campfire that is being transformed into something unrecognizable before our eyes. And for this reason, Jude urges two attitudes. Fear is the first. It's understandable. We should have a healthy fear of contamination from sin. I don't mean that we don't go anywhere near an unbeliever. That would be to deny the example of our Savior. What, what I mean and what I think Jude meant is that we should not judge ourselves so holy, so good, that we consider ourselves entirely, entirely immune. A doctor takes great precaution in treating ill patients in order to ensure that they don't contract the illness themselves. They may wear a mask. They incessantly wash their hands. They slather themselves with hand sanitizer. They tend to avoid ties, neckties, because they can dangle and pick up germs. They have a healthy and understandable fear regarding what they are doing. And likewise, we too must take seriously the power of sin to corrupt and destroy. Our temptation might be to ignore the festering corruption in our midst. We, we see someone who claims to be a Christian, but their lives are marked by absolute unrepentance and just a deep depravity. And especially in our culture, we might simply want to ignore that. 
I'll take care of myself, I'll take care of the people who are, but I'm just, I'm going to leave that be. But that would be naive. That would be as naive as thinking that your roommate who is hacking up a lung right now can't hurt you if you maybe just, you know, pull your shirt up over your nose. I remember when, uh, when I was little and we had chicken pox and my, my friend John had chicken pox and uh, I don't remember who got it first. You know, it went through the neighborhood. This was before the, the vaccine that came out a couple years ago. And his brother, who was a senior in high school, he was, I remember trading baseball cards. We were trading baseball cards in, in the floor of his bedroom. And his brother was tr doing this thing. His dad was a pathologist. He should have known better. And, and right before his senior prom, he comes down with the chicken pox, you know. Um, you, know you need a, a certain healthy fear. healthy fear that causes us to act decisively to ensure our own protection yes but also maybe more importantly to ensure the protection of others especially those who are weak in their faith Jude also urged hatred which we like to think hatred is bad and it's evil and we don't like to talk about it and Jude says we should hate even the garment stained by the flesh. It's a little hyperbole, maybe, but it makes sense with Jewish understanding of the garment's contamination. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, those of you who are Christians here, we have to hate sin. It lies, it kills. It destroys, it wrecks lives, it even wrecks innocent lives. How many people have you known, maybe you yourself, had your life upended, wrecked, damaged, not because of a sin that you committed, but maybe a sin that your parents committed or authority committed. There is nothing good or worthy, or generous, or nice about sin. It's awful. And one of the reasons why sin is so seductive, I think, is that we don't believe how awful it really is. But sin is the very thing which separates us from our creator. It's the thing that corrupts us into eternal destruction. It is deadly serious. We must hate it. We must hate its power. We must hate its effects. We must hate its sinister nature. We must hate the way it lies and the way it beckons us and tells us sweet nothings to entice us into its ways. We must hate every ounce of it. And the best way to learn to hate sin is to love God more. Sin is the very opposite of his nature and his heartbeat. So the more deeply we love God, the more naturally we will hate sin. So we, we have to dig deeper and deeper into his word and uncover the beauties of, of his nature and his person and celebrate them and, and love him. And when we love God perfectly, and one day we will, then we will hate sin perfectly and it'll be gone. Make no mistake, Jude is advocating a very strong response here. 
But even in a strong response characterized by fear and hate, even here Jude hangs this all on the command to have mercy. Those who are gone this far, we might want to dismiss them. We might want to put them out of our minds. But Jude won't let us do that. Even on those who seem gone for good, we must show pity and compassion that seeks to bless and to heal in the midst of that person's destruction. It's done with all proper precaution, fear, and without, uh, without downplaying the gravity of the situation, hatred. But even still, we're merciful. Why? Because when we were unloved and unloving, God loved us. And when we had proverbially raised our middle finger to God's glorious throne, proclaimed our independence from him, he was patient. And when we were long gone by human counting, he died for us. And he took death for us. And he raised for us. And he gave life to us. And he did that for me, a miserable wretch of a man. And he did that for all of you who are called by his grace. And so we have mercy because God had mercy on us first. And we know that if I was not so far gone, then perhaps he isn't. Perhaps she isn't. I will have mercy because I know a God who is able. So Jude presents this sort of threefold case study. For us, it's a case study. For them, it was unfortunately real life. False teachers had crept in and different Christians had succumbed or started to succumb to different levels. And how do we treat them? Well, it's not a one-size-fits-all. But in each case, appropriate to the circumstances, we see that we are commanded to act decisively to guard the spiritual lives of those who are brothers and sisters in the Christian faith. Those who we are called to spend eternity with. It's a sobering calling, but it is true mercy and it's true love. Let's pray. Father, we confess that too often we don't show true mercy because we are more afraid of what others will say or think. We are more afraid of man than we are of you. And so we sometimes allow our fellow Christians to waver, to taste sin, to fall deeply into its clutches because we fear. Forgive us for that weakness. Make us here at Gateway Watchmen 
always keeping a loving eye on one another, to protect one another, to care for one another. To show mercy, not mere pity, when our brokenness gets the best of us. And God, if there be any who are trapped in sin now, may you surround them with those who will pluck them from the fire, who will show them mercy. but also may they be convicted and return to the saving grace which bought them in the first place. It's in Jesus' name we pray.